If Gabrielle Chanel's life were a playlist, it would start with the hymns of her childhood and jump to the cabaret that gave her the nickname Coco. Next up, a bel canto aria played on her own grand piano and, of course, the Beatles live in London with jazz and blues and Johnny Halliday and Stravinsky in between. The playlist would close with a song from Coco, the Broadway musical that starred Catherine Hepburn in the title role. Watch the film that explores this eclectic, refined musical journey on InsideChanel.com. She was this extremely sexually voracious woman having affairs with everybody left and right, and he was a virgin when they met. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, in case you've forgotten, in which case, shame on you, Valentine's Day is right around the corner again. And we here at The Art Angle are all a Twitter. That's because we just love love, particularly when it comes to art history, which is about as full of steamy, sensational, and downright scandalous love affairs as your heart could possibly desire. Luckily, Artnet News just so happens to be equipped with an expert on the subject in Katie White, a journalist who knows an alarming amount about the love lives of the artists, the fascinating affairs, marriages, breakups, and obsessions that have shaped the course of art history as we know it. So slip into something more comfortable, because I am very happy to have Katie on the show today to talk about five of the art world's most riveting romantic entanglements. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Valentine's Day has come around again when a young art journalist's fancy turns to thoughts of love. As I've mentioned, you're something of an expert on the topic when it comes to art world romances. What makes them so compelling to you? I'm an art history junkie just out of my own interest, but I also love gossip and it kind of combines my two favorite worlds and artists have better gossip than almost anybody. And a lot of notable artists are pretty famous for living their lives outside of the bounds of convention. Is that the case for romantic relationships in art history, too? It's definitely the case for romantic relationships in art history. I mean, doing research into these artist romances, you kind of start wondering how they had any time to do work because they're so busy having affairs, moving, divorcing, traveling around the world, and really going against the grain of what you would think was conventional society. You know, you think of the past as a more conservative time, but these relationships definitely were not conservative at all. I, mean, I guess they had more time on their hands without social media and Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But, you know, I'll take Twitter over some of these romantic liaisons. They're really dramatic. Okay, so... Speaking of dramatic liaisons, you very thoughtfully put together a list of five case studies for us. Mm -hmm. Who is the first lucky couple? Okay, so the first couple is Andre Friedman and Greta Pohorile, which their names might not be familiar. That's because they're famous as Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro, who were two of the most influential photographers of the 20th century. What's their story? So they met just through coincidence. So both of them were Jewish refugees to Paris. Gerda Taro was a German Jew who fled with the rise of Nazism. And Robert Kappa was a Hungarian Jew who had come to France after he'd been accused of being a communist. Robert Kappa was working as a photographer for a Swiss insurance company, oddly enough. And he was working on commission. And so he kind of has to make advertorial 
images and he was looking for models. And so he approached this woman, Ruth Cerf, on the street in Paris and asked her if she would consider modeling for him. She said yes, but she was kind of suspicious of him. And so she asked her friend, Greta, to come with her to the photo shoot and the rest was history. They had a lot in common just from a shared radical politics, bohemianism, and just a passion for photography. And they were really inseparable after just meeting. How did they go from Andre and Goethe to Robert Kappa and Goethe Tarot? The way that that happened actually was that they formulated a company or a fake photographer that was called Robert Kappa. And essentially, they were trying to get more photography deals. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism going around. And they, so they just made up this character, Robert Kappa. Kappa in Hungarian means shark and was his nickname. And so they both started photographing under Robert Kappa and kind of pretending to be agents for this photographer who was totally invented. And eventually, they decided they would split the two identities so that Goethe would become Goethe Taro. And Taro was the name of a Japanese artist that she was interested in. And so they basically both adopted these names as fronts so that they could get more jobs. And they thought that the American angle would attract, you know, more high profile magazines. So were they kind of like scammers? I mean, maybe. I think that if you're <laughs> scamming to avoid bias, I think it's okay. Huh. I'm just thinking it sounds a little bit like J.T. Leroy, like creating a fictional persona and going out there and selling it. Was there any kind of like atmosphere of chicanery or espionage around this? I don't know if espionage was the right term, but they were definitely extremely political. And I think that they would do anything to get the jobs that they wanted so that they could go to the front lines of various conflicts around the world. Unlike a lot of photographers today who are war photographers who try to take a maybe a more impartial point of view, they had a really particular point of view, which is they were anti-fascist. And so that influenced everything they did. And what kind of photography did they do? Because the two of them pretty much constituted a major historic breakthrough in the art of war photography. Yeah, I mean, they totally transformed it. And I think it's pretty popular consensus that Robert Kappa and now Goethe is getting more attention as well, but is the greatest war photographer of the 20th century. And their approach was really to be on the front line. So a lot of war photography before that had been in the aftermath, and that was not their approach. They were in the thick of things all the time. Kappa had a quote that was repeated all the time, which is, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough, meaning you have to be in the battle. And that was what made their photos, especially of the Spanish Civil War, so popular. It was the first time anyone had seen images of battle itself. What was their work like and what was their relationship like? Their relationship and their work were kind of entwined and they traveled everywhere together. They also worked a ton with this photographer, David Seymour, but his nickname was Chim. And together they formed a trio. Kappa and Chim were the two founders of Magnum. But before that happened, they were just photographic partners. So the three of them really moved around everywhere. And they were really inseparable, best friends, but also really fun. I mean, Goethe Taro is supposed to be one of the most vivacious and fun-loving people in, in the history of photography. So I think she was a fun lady. 
there was an interesting anecdote that I read that said that sometimes they would go out to the front lines or a deserted battlefield. And at the end of the day, they'd be looking through their film and they'd realize that they had taken the exact same shot. Interestingly, what happened in 2007 was there was this major discovery of several rolls of film, actually 4,500 negatives that had been lost that were taken during the Spanish Civil War by Taro and Kappa. And those negatives were really insightful because it goes to exactly what you were saying. They would make these negative sheets and kind of take notes on the negative about why a photo worked, a, a photo didn't work. And a lot of their photos were the same. And a lot of the photos they chose as the good photos were almost exactly the same image. So how did their relationship come to an end? Well, tragically, which is that Gerda Taro is considered the first woman photojournalist to die on the front line of a war. And so she died in Escorial in Spain in 1937. She was only 26. And she was coming back from having covered a battle. And she was riding on a truck that collided with an out-of-control tank. She was killed in Spain. And then, unfortunately, sometime later, Kappa also died in battle. He died in Vietnam covering the Indochina War in 1956 when he was 40. So they both died when they were quite young. Hmm. And he had a, a fairly long career after her untimely demise where he covered a couple of mm -hmm. different wars. He actually dated Ingrid Bergman for a little bit. And, you know, he became this kind of legendary ladies man. How is their relationship being reconsidered in art history? Well, I think a lot of what's being reconsidered is actually her role in their relationship because she's only really come to the fore of people's minds in maybe the past decade. I actually worked on a show at International Center for Photography when I was still in graduate school about Chim. And during that time, they were really reevaluating, looking at these negatives, seeing how much of the work was really hers and how she was overshadowed by him not because it was something that he was really out to be the star. It was just the times. And it was pretty common for women's work to just be taken under his name. So I think that there's room for both of them, for sure. Okay, so who is our next pair of lovebirds? So our next pair is maybe a couple that's a little bit more familiar, Salvador Dali and Gala Dali. So yeah, I think everybody knows who Salvador Dali is, but... I think that Gala may be more of a mystery to some listeners. What's their story? Who is she? Yeah, well, she's a real firecracker. <laughs> Gala was actually born Elena Diakonova in Russia, and she was an emigre to France. And when she met Dolly, she was already married to Paul Eluard, who was another famous surrealist painter. And he, she had met when she was a teenager. They'd both been at a sanatorium in Switzerland where she was recovering from tuberculosis. So she'd known Paul Ward since she was quite young. And so they were married and they had a daughter together, Cecile. So they go on this vacation to Spain where they meet Dali and she was just totally smitten with him. And they had an unconventional marriage. They'd been in an open relationship with Max Ernst for something like three years. And I think it was something that her husband thought might be like a passing fancy, but it definitely wasn't. And pretty soon after she met him, she divorced her husband and moved to Spain to live with Dali. 
What was it that made her unusual in terms of being able to relate to Salvador Dali? They were both a little bit of megalomaniacs, I guess, would be sort of the only way to say it. They both really bristled people the wrong way. You know, we don't know them, so we can't be sure. But everyone thought Dolly was a narcissist because he walked around talking about how he was a genius. And everyone thought she was a social climber and super greedy and only out to make money, which maybe there's modicums of truth to both of those stories. I heard that on the day that they first met, she was the only person who could put up with his hysterical laughter and his constant <laughs> scatological humor. <laughs> that sounds pretty accurate. So what was their relationship actually like? I mean, it was really unusual. And I think a lot of people thought that they wouldn't last. I mean, she was 10 years older than him. She was 34 when they met. He was 24. She was this extremely sexually voracious woman having affairs with everybody left and right. And he was a virgin when they met. To add to that, he was totally broke. So she had left kind of a middle-class lifestyle with her husband and went to live with him on the coast of Spain, where they had no heat, no running water, really no money. And Dali had been supporting himself really almost entirely from income from his father. But his father, who was a more conservative Catholic, because Dali thought he was Catholic, but in a totally different sense than his father, cut him off entirely. So they were dead broke which I think is an interesting fact for all her, you know, greed and avarice. She did leave a comfortable lifestyle to go live with him when he had nothing. I think that one notable fact about how much of an odd couple they were is that, as you mentioned, she was, you know, known for being sexually voracious. Mm, yeah. And he was actually disgusted by conventional sex. He openly said that he found the female body repulsive. So they had an arrangement where she was encouraged to pursue affairs. And she had an affair, a long-term affair with her first husband. So they remained close after the divorce. So she was allowed to pursue all these relationships. And that was a thrill for Dolly in his own way. And it was going well until really the 1960s when that turned a corner and she was spending tons of money on young lovers. He got really jealous and then entered a really strange period in their marriage. So before we get to the strange period, what role did she play in his art? A huge, a huge part. And she was his muse. He called her his gravida. He had this quote that was, she was destined to be my gravida, the one who moves forward, my victory, my wife. And gravida was a term that he used to describe depictions of her in his artworks. And it was kind of a Virgin Mary, mystical mother type figure, which is probably his most frequently painted model. But on top of that, she was a managerial whiz. So talking about how she left her husband to live with Dali and Dali had no money, well, she changed that pretty quickly. While he was painting, she would go to galleries with his work and really, really hustled. And so the interesting thing is that Dali gets frowned upon now because he oversaturated the public consciousness. He was in commercials and everything, and people really started taking his work not as seriously. But at the same time, that's also a testament to her amazing PR skills, her amazing sales skills. And she really made him this cultural icon without her, who knows? I think a telling detail is that he actually signed a couple of his paintings as Gala Salvador Dali, as if they were mm -hmm. one person. And some people say that she didn't create any art 
of her own, but she created the persona of Salvador Dali. I mean, I think that's really true. And he also had this line that he would say all the time, which was that he painted with her blood, which is a very weird way to say it, but essentially giving her all this credit for his work. So you mentioned that she was kind of reputed to be avaricious, that she was very Mm -hmm. money-grubbing. What was Gala like as a person? She wasn't (laughs) well-regarded. She wasn't liked. People thought that she was really ostentatious that she just loved luxury and loved to spend money and would do anything to get the money to spend the money, which might have been true. I mean, they lived super extravagantly. They bought a castle in the south of Spain that they lived in. They had a pet anteater. They had a pet ocelot. They really lived an eccentric lifestyle. And, you know, there were all these horror stories about her burning people with cigarettes. And she was so sexually open-minded, you could say, but she really didn't care if people were married or what. If she wanted somebody, she just pursued it. So that made her not everyone's favorite, for sure. And Andre Breton, who was the founder of Surrealism and had used her as a muse, years later totally repudiated her publicly, saying that she destroyed Dali. But what happened towards the end of their relationship. You mentioned that there was a surreal, quote-unquote, period that happened. Yeah, so she wanted to live really independently from Dali at one point in their life when this kind of had become strained. And so he bought this castle in Spain, this medieval castle that she was living in by herself most of the time. And he could only visit her if he arranged a visit. Otherwise, she wouldn't accept him. And during this period of time, she was lavishing her lovers. She had her one boyfriend at the end of her life who had been the star of Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical. Who played Jesus, right? Yeah, he played Jesus. So (laughs) Jesus was her boyfriend. And she bought him a house in Long Island that was worth more than a million dollars. She was giving him paintings by Dali that he then went and sold at auction. And Dali didn't know anything about it until he saw them at auction. So things got really dark between them and there was physical violence on both parts, really intense altercations. And then there was also this story going around that seems to have a bit of narrative to it, that she was over-medicating him, that she was giving Dali all these pills to kind of sedate him. And that might have been what set off his issues with Parkinson's disease when he was late in his life, which is a pretty intense accusation. But needless to say, at that point in their lives, things were really strange. How did their relationship actually come to an end? Well, she was 10 years older than him, as I mentioned. She died in 1982 in the south of Spain. And he was with her then, and he really didn't believe that she died. It was like he had an intense trauma over it. And so she was in her 80s at that point. And Dali, kind of after that, for all this tumult that had gone on between them for some 20 years almost... He really couldn't handle it. And so he totally retreated from society. He was malnourished. Anytime anyone tried to take care of him, he would lash out at them. So it was really like the end of his life without her, he almost couldn't take care of himself. And he really stopped creating and he let himself waste away, which is really sad. Pretty distressing story. Let's move on. Who's the next couple? Well, the next couple that we have is an artist trio of photography collective called Pajama. And they're a thruple, actually. The technical term, I believe, is a thruple. So who were they? So they were three painters. Usually they were painters. It included Paul Cadmus, Jared French, and Margaret Honing French, who was Jared French's wife. And they were taking photographs in the 1930s and 40s. So what's interesting about them is that 
they painted in the public. So they worked in this style that was called magic realism that sort of cropped up in the 1930s as an alternate vision than the abstract expressionism that we really talk about from that time period. But that style was sort of figurative and it had some social commentary with these unusual elements that were meant to comment on the strangeness of the time. And it was all really subtly erotic or maybe not so subtly sometimes. So Jared French and Margaret Honing French were married, but Jared French and Paul Cadmus were openly lovers and they traveled together all the time. They would travel to Long Island frequently, Fire Island, Provincetown, Cape Cod, Nantucket, beachy areas in the Northeast. And as pajama, they were taking these photographs, not painting. And it was a really collaborative art trio. So they would take pictures of each other. They would take pictures of their friends. They would let their friends take pictures of them. And it was a decidedly queer crowd of people. So most of the people that were involved in their circle were from New York City's dance community and literary community. So including the likes of Truman Capote. And it was mostly people laying around on the beach, but using nature and elements as almost architectural props for their photographs. Why were they calling themselves pajama? Oh, well, that's a great part. And silly that I missed it. Pajama was a moniker that they derived from all their first names. So Paul, Jared, Margaret, they took the first two letters and together we get pajama. They were obviously a throuple, which is a very complicated romantic arrangement. How did that actually work in practice? I mean, it didn't work super well, is the long and the short of it. So his wife, Margaret Honing French, was aware of this and that they weren't the only couple that had this kind of relationship in their circle. There were other women with men who were either homosexual and married or bisexual, and it was not a secret at all. But I think just the tensions and the jealousies that went with that were really complicated. So there's this story about how Jared French and Margaret Honing French bought a house somewhere in the Northeast, a kind of vacationing area. And on the property, they gave a house to Paul Cadmus, who was then in a relationship with the regionalist painter George Tucker. And it just didn't work. I don't know the nitty gritty of it, but they rescinded the house from him pretty soon after they'd given it to him. So it wasn't going well. So what is the legacy of their relationship today? Huge in the sense that they've been rediscovered as this, you could call it almost a queer utopia that existed at the height of what would have been a machismo World War II era. So I think that a lot of artists of today are looking towards them either as parallels to work that they might want to be creating now or as kind of icons of history that should be better appreciated. I think that it's obviously complicated because this was a group of extremely well-off bourgeois white people who were vacationing all the time. So they weren't just anybody, but they had a really interesting, open approach to their sexuality in a time where it was illegal. But the thing about their artwork that I think is worth saying is that this wasn't their paintings. This wasn't art that they were showing in galleries. This was private. The photographs, they circulated them around their friend group, almost like postcards. And it wasn't really until the 80s that the work started being appreciated independently as art. It's fascinating. So is our next couple also a throuple? 
No, no, I think we should go with a little couple that might have a happy story for once. Okay, who are they? So we're going to talk about Gwendolyn Knight and Jacob Lawrence. Jacob Lawrence is probably, arguably, the most famous African-American artist of the 20th century. And Gwendolyn Knight is his wife, who is also an artist. She's kind of been overlooked, but there's really like a renewed appreciation around her work more recently. What is their story? How did they meet? To be honest, they didn't have super happy childhoods necessarily. Gwendolyn Knight was from Barbados. She left Barbados at seven, not with her own family, but with a foster family, really close friends of her mother. And she came to the U.S. And she grew up in St. Louis. And then when she was 12, she moved to New York City. A similar story for Jacob Lawrence in the sense that his parents divorced when he was seven and he had two younger siblings, which it was not an easy time to be a single mother, needless to say. And he and his siblings went into foster care for a time. Then they were reunited with their mother. And similarly, when he was 12, they moved to New York City, where they both became interested in art. And they met actually working through the Works Progress Administration. So the story is that Gwendolyn Knight was an assistant to the artist Charles Alston, who was painting a children's ward at Harlem Hospital. And Alston and Lawrence were friends. And one day she went to the studio and she met Lawrence there. So that's how they met. And they met in the mid-1930s and they got married in 1941. And what kind of art did they make? They were really influenced by the legacy of the Harlem Renaissance and really by the energy in Harlem where they lived. So at a time when abstraction was really gaining a ton of predominance in mainstream art world, both of them decided to stick with figuration. And Lawrence especially kind of developed this interesting style where he would do storytelling through his artwork, right? So it would almost be like pages of a book, but as a beautiful painted canvas that together told a story. And his most famous series from 1940-1941 is the Migration Series. And that is a series of paintings that tells a story of the Black American migration from the rural South to the industrial North. And that was kind of starting in the 1910s and lasted well past the creation of this series. That was kind of his most pivotal work. And so he had a really socially informed approach to art. Her work was more lyrical and it was more centered around dance and her interest in West African culture. So her work is more informed by almost her personal experience rather than societal storytelling. I mean, looking at photographs of them, they're a very glamorous couple. They almost look like they're movie stars. I mean, extremely so. She's really gorgeous. And they're both extremely stylish and really striking looking. So what was their relationship like? Their relationship was pretty supportive. I mean, Jacob Lawrence throughout his life suffered from depression. After he had served in the military, he went to an inpatient treatment clinic for his mental health. And that was something that he dealt with his entire life. But she really was a rock of support for him. That said, they moved around a lot for opportunities afforded mostly to him, and she put her painting on hold. And she had this quote that I liked that said, it wasn't necessary for me to have a claim. I knew that I wanted to do it, and I did it whenever I could, meaning painting. So 
she kind of put things on the back burner and they moved around the country as he was looking for jobs. So they lived in New Orleans. They lived in North Carolina for a while because they were invited to teach at Black Mountain College. They lived in New York. And then in 1971, Jacob Lawrence finally got a tenured teaching position in Seattle at the University of Washington, Seattle. So all of our previous relationships that we've discussed have had very dramatic endings. Is it the same thing with them? No, luckily, it's a little bit happier than that. So in the 1970s, once they moved there and were kind of more settled, Knight started painting really with more devotion than she'd been able to afford it earlier in in her life. And she met with success pretty quickly. So in 1976, which is five years after they moved to Seattle, the Seattle Art Museum gave her her first solo exhibition And their legacy was also very tied up in social endeavors. And aside from being a painter, she was super involved in philanthropy. And together they set up the Gwendolyn Knight and Jacob Lawrence Foundation. And that foundation has kind of a manifold approach, which is they support young artists who are struggling with a focus on African-American artists. And also they do tons of work with children's organizations, which was a cause that was extremely close to her. So He died in 2000. She died in 2005. She was in her 90s then, but they were married their whole lives and seemingly pretty contently. I mean, it's a beautiful relationship. It's almost like, you know, something out of Ovid, like Pyramus and Thisbe. So who is our last pair of art lovers? Well, we're going back in time. Um, It's Raphael and Margarita Lutti, who may not be familiar to everyone. So I think we all know Raphael, who was his lady friend. So Margarita Lutti was a baker's daughter from Siena. That's how she's referenced. We don't really know how they met, but it's a rumor that has existed since Raphael's lifetime and hasn't gone anywhere in the hundreds of years. Raphael actually died when he was quite young. So he died in 1520 and he was 37 when he died. He was officially a bachelor, but history has other details to suggest. What do you mean? Please elaborate. <laughs> Sorry. So, so mysterious. So essentially, there's this interesting saga where even in his lifetime, Raphael was known as a really amorous man. He was officially engaged to this woman, Maria Bibiana, who is the niece of a powerful cardinal. Some people say that she was his daughter, you know, cardinals in the 1500s, who knows. But this cardinal, Bernardo Davisi, was also one of Raphael's patrons. So he was officially engaged to Maria Bibiana, but he put off the marriage for his whole lifetime until he died. In fact, there's a rumor that when she came to visit him on his deathbed, he sent her away. And Margarita Lutti, many believe, may have been his secret wife. Giorgio Fasari, the famous art historian, doesn't refer to her by name, but he makes allusions to the fact that Raphael couldn't be without his mistress when he was painting at the Villa Farnese. And so they had to bring his mistress to him so that he could focus. And she had to be there at all times so that he could concentrate on finishing his work. And art historians have a lot of theories that this painting La Fornarina, which in Italian means the baker's daughter, kind of reveals that they maybe were secretly married. Hmm. And what is the element about the painting that suggests that? It's an unusual painting because the official name of the painting is Portrait of a Young Woman, but it's been called La Fornarina since the 1500s, since it was painted. 
And it shows a woman who is staring out from the canvas and she's only partially clothed. So she's got nothing on her chest and she's has this kind of diaphanous layer of cloth that's going over her shoulder and draping over her stomach. And she's looking out at the canvas at the viewer and holding her hand to her chest in this really romantic way. And a lot of people think that the little attributes throughout the canvas suggest that obviously it was someone Raphael knew very intimately and also that it could be an allusion to nuptials. And there's several clues that are kind of convincing. Hmm. Do we know anything actually about her that stems from sourcing outside of Vasari, outside of the art historical record, or is she kind of an enigma? She's largely an enigma in terms of her own time period. We do know that after Raphael died, that there was a women's shelter at a convent that accepted a woman who was Margarita Luti, who was the daughter of a baker from Siena. So it's kind of believed that she was a little bit left out to fend for herself when he died. But the painting does have some convincing elements that maybe they were married. I don't know. And you mentioned that Raphael died at the tender age of 37. How did he die? I'm not really sure. Do you know? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, <laughs> at least if we can rely on George Vasari's Lives of the Artists, he apparently died of what you call an overdose of concupiscence. <laughs> when he had too many amorous encounters in one day. But what happened to the Fornarina? After she died, you know, there was a real cover-up, apparently, um, by Raphael's students to conceal that he might have been married. And the reasons for that are complicated, but it really comes down to money. So it's believed that the painting La Fornarina, which Raphael died while he was painting it and his students finished it, the figure had a ring on her left hand that the students covered up. And then they basically tried to obscure the fact that she had any presence in his life. And the reason for that is that at the time of his death, his studio was in contract for a commission with the Vatican. And seeing as his official fiance was the niece of this very important Vatican official, they were really worried that there would be a scandal and they'd lose the commission. So they did everything they could to just eliminate her from his history, but they didn't really succeed entirely. I mean, they even added a plaque on his grave saying, you know, with a tribute to his fiance. But unfortunately, a lot of art lovers, art historians, writers, and painters really became enamored with this story as the prototypical archetype of artist and muse. And what is the legacy of their relationship? Their story took off as a phenomenon in romantic culture for the past several hundred years. John Dominique Ong, who's a famous neoclassical French painter, made a painting imagining Marguerite Luti and Raphael together. Famously, Flaubert, who obviously wouldn't have known anything about her, never seen her except for in painting, said she was a very beautiful woman, and that's what inspired all of his great artwork. And then famously, Picasso was fixated on this painting, La Fornarina, and he did a whole set of etchings late in his life devoted to her figure and to Raphael's masterpiece. So you've looked into all these relationships. Does any theory appear to you about how art and romance interrelate? 
I guess every relationship is different and that would be no different for artists. But I do think that there are some ways that it makes sense that artists would have very passionate relationships. A good romance obviously has to have some sort of vision and also some sense of inspiration, which theoretically artists would be cultivating in their own lives. And beyond that, I think that Romance is something that is demanding of attention and time and dedication and obviously making artists too. So in that way, maybe it goes hand in hand. I also think people's private lives in history are really on public display and people kept diaries. I think in the past, there's just more information about people's private lives in hard copy, whereas ours is more digital and we'll need some sleuths to figure it out. But I think that everyone's relationships can be tumultuous, but artists, they're in our consciousness and maybe we want their relationships to be more exciting. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Katie. This has been fun. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks very much. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.